0: Welcome to Impostors Anonymous. For those of you who used to be somewhat regular listeners of the show, welcome back. Season 2 is officially underway, and though the fundamentals will remain the same, there will be some noteworthy changes. Of course, to any first time listeners, as always, I highly recommend you take a moment to jump back to the intro of the project. It should be listed as a trailer for the show at the bottom of the list of episodes in your podcast player. It's only about 7 minutes long and provides some pretty important context about the nature of this show, its aims, and how it differs from most, so again, I advise you starting there so that the premise of this project isn't totally lost on you. To my returning listeners, thanks for sticking around through the past couple of months, which have been pretty hot and cold from a content perspective. In short, a lot has changed since I decided to give this project a go. There have been plenty of ups and downs personally, and for the most part I think this show has reflected that, which honestly has probably been for the best. Much has been learned, and many of my perspectives have evolved. The same can probably be said about each of my guests, and hopefully you all as well. Which brings me to what will be different this time around. If there's anything to be gleaned from this project, it's that as individuals, our identities and perspectives are in a constant state of fluctuation and irreducible nuance. We're never quite the person we were a moment ago. Everything we experience changes us. Each conversation I have on this show is just a snapshot, a irrepeatable moment in time, a brief glimpse of what individuals can bring to the table. At the end of each episode, I could probably roll back the tape, start from scratch and have a new conversation of a completely different nature, tone, and theme. So I think that about sums up where the project is heading. I guess I'll resist my inclination towards overexposition and wrap things up here, but one final update, I will begin trying to incorporate the audience's questions into episodes, both for recordings with recurring guests as well as solo Ask Me Anything episodes, which I'll be recording the first of soon. So if there's anything you'd like to hear discussed or you'd like me to speak to specifically, please do give us a follow on Instagram or Twitter and send your questions. The audience isn't huge here, so there's a good chance your questions or topics will be featured. If you have anything at all, don't hesitate. I'd love to hear from you. And on that note, thanks for giving this a shot. And I hope you enjoy the episode. You don't know how lucky you are being a monkey.
1: Story we tell ourselves. I am the smartest man alive! How do we know if uh, we're in control?
0: All right. Welcome to Imposters Anonymous. Nevin, thanks for coming back. How are you feeling today?
2: Pretty good. A little. I wouldn't say scared, but I'm, I'm, I feel a sense of, of cautiousness going into this conversation, <laughs> perhaps.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's a fair way to start, but, uh, first off, happy to have you here. Appreciate it. It's, it's the first podcast I think I've done in person in, in quite some time. And I know our, our first conversation was remote digital, if you will, and definitely changes the dynamics to, to be able to actually sit down and, and look someone in the eyes and, uh, So yeah, I'm just happy to be doing this again. Appreciate you making time for it. And I'll see how much uh, trouble I can get you into. (laughs) Yeah,
2: for sure. for sure. (laughs) Well, no, I I think this is a cool, I I appreciate it. I think the mission of doing it when you did. And I I think it's cool that you're continuing it and and to see how it evolves with kind of environmental changes like this, I think will be interesting. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. and, And to be clear, I think for anyone who maybe forgets, one of the fundamental aims of this whole project is is to have the sorts of conversations that people often find are very difficult to have in any sort of a public sense and the sorts of conversations that quite literally only happen behind closed doors, because I feel like those are the sorts of conversations people most often need to hear now more than ever, because that was the place that I kind of came from when I started at all was I realized I almost, almost the only scenario or context in which I was comfortable, really speaking my mind in an honest and genuine way was when I was sitting at home with my wife and that was pretty much it. (laughs) And that, that became a problem for me. Yeah. I I realized that that's, that's not a healthy environment. And then maybe it's a reflection of that, but I wanted to be able to give myself a space to try to have that, those sorts of conversations with all sorts of people or or even strangers and, and to be able to, to put it out there. Um, so again, thanks for doing this. And, uh, We'll see what happens, but to to jump right in, I know I guess the past year or so has has been quite eventful in regards to I guess the past couple of years in regards to the Supreme Court. We had I guess two pretty controversial appointments, and I think a lot of people have pretty uh, a broad range of perspectives on what is the trajectory of of the current Supreme Court and what that might mean long term. Um, so I, I'm curious to start if there's anything that that stands out to you, or if you have an overall perspective on where the Supreme Court currently sits with with the uh, I guess conservative majority, and if you feel like there is a a true potential for there to be sweeping more more extreme change in in the near future.
2: Yeah, it's a it, at one point you made. It- just before we started, is that you know any one of these kind of topics that we might get into could be uh, obviously a whole podcast, and I think this this question in particular is is a handful of of podcasts as mm-hmm. it were at, at current, Um, and you know different sources do these types of things, Scotus blog, and and different law school professors do these kind of um you know year in review kind of mm-hmm. things that that I often like to listen to because it's interesting just to to get a a wide range of opinions. I think that's particularly true because I don't know how wide of a range of opinions are represented by what might be called like mainstream media. I Mm -hmm. think like the the range of views represented there are not indicative of the overall. Um, and certainly not indicative of, of what I guess, like, I view the, the legally educated community to necessarily have. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I mean, yeah, broad, broad view, kind of mile high. Yeah, certainly, we certainly have a conservative majority (laughs) in the Supreme Court. Yeah, Um, maybe, you know, as was maybe true to some degree in our last conversation, and as I think will be true in this conversation, everything that's going to be said has exceptions. That's that's an inherent part of the law. It's why. It's why the law isn't totally tyrannical, mm-hmm. is that we allow room for exceptions. Right. Um, so so in that light, as a rule, with exceptions, I tend to be uh someone who interprets the law conservatively mm. rather than whatever you would want to use as the term that's the opposite of that, whether that's progressively or liberally or leftly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um I, I tend not to be, and that, that hasn't always been my view. And I think that, um, I, I went to a pretty left leaning law school in mm-hmm. which a lot of students, a lot of students who were my friends in particular belong to the, um, public interest service program. So these were students who, a lot of them got a lot of financial aid to go to law school, specifically to go on to be a public defender, mm-hmm. um, and so those are going to tend to be people who are politically left, who believe in um, civil rights, wise at least limited government. Although their limited government view sometimes stops there, and they want a lot of regulation when it comes sure. to economic points. Um, I think in law school, I, I had a couple of conservative, what we call conservative professors, people who would would be very happy with the current makeup of the Supreme Court. Gotcha. And they they sort of opened my eyes to a couple of things that I just frankly wasn't uh exposed to before. And one of those is this um the term would be the Chicago School of Economics. So mm-hmm. so within like intellectual schools of thought in America, the Chicago School of Economics tends to be a more conservative um and conservative you know, maybe one of the points of your podcast overall is how people assign uh, meanings to terms often right. incorrectly. So m- me using conservative is going to mean something different in, in every person's ear who's hearing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the Chicago school is closer to what people might understand as libertarian in that it is small government, uh, free market, civil rights, like pro-civil rights minded mm-hmm. uh, of, a, of a school of thought typically. And... I think I liked that, and I hadn't really been exposed to what what might be seen as the quote-unquote intellectual side of the right mm. of center. Uh, I think so often, unfortunately, and again, this might be a product of kind of what most media tends to lean towards, we see the right – in it really, its limited sense of just, I think the religious right. I think often mm. when people think about or see or or there's depictions of the the right in America, it's Idaho, it's Texas, right? It's morbidly obese, it's white, it's poor or or blue collar, mm. and um and social. To the extent abortion is a social issue, social issues like abortion matter far more than do. The issues which fiscally conservative people care about, Mm -hmm. and and you might be able to make the distinction there between what's called like the Connecticut conservative, right? The person who takes the takes the nice train into their city job, it has Mm -hmm. the you know what I mean. That person will get their daughter an abortion. Yeah. Period. Mm -hmm. There's no moral qualm there. They're also probably very high earners and care much more about tax implications and and things like. you know, how investments work, then does the Idaho, Walmart, religious right. Right. Um, So I just want to kind of in clarification of terms, like those two have unified in some sense, and yet their their beliefs and motivations are so opposite that, that whenever I refer to the right, I am I want to recognize I'm inherently referring to a group of people that don't agree with each other on most things. Mm-hmm. But enough that... Um, They've remained the grand old party, I guess, as mm. it were. Um, I'd only ever been exposed to that, I think, growing up where I grew up and from my background, mostly in a negative sense and seeing the religious right and maybe the not intellectual, not academic arguments for those social positions. Mm. And law school was really the first time where I saw the ac- the academic, intellectual, conservative person. Yeah. And, um, so I was won over by that, I think. And and it's guided how I view, how I read law, how I interpret uh, legal decisions. And so to be very frank, I'm happy with the current makeup of the Supreme Court. Mm. And I think that um, it's more likely to lead to more good decisions with positive long-term impacts um, than I think the court was when uh, Kennedy and RBJ were on it. Two justices who I like and who I and who I have individual opinions from which I think are really high quality. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am generally speaking someone who's conservative who thinks the law should be conserved could you know interpreted conservatively and limitedly, mm-hmm. um, particularly when it comes to the power of, of government. Right. I think this court will probably do that. <laughs> 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 you know, that's that's the interesting question of. of you know, there's there's this high you know idea of conservatism, but of course, this is a court with nine real people on it with real personal motivations and beliefs that you know n- no one really. Ident- it is what I've just laid out of the conservative, mm-hmm. in part because it is inherently kind of contradictory. Right. Um, so you know, Amy Coney Barrett, for example, probably is more the religious right than she is the the fiscal right. She's mm-hmm. she's probably less what we would call a Connecticut conservative than she is the person going to the mega Baptist church in Dallas. I see her more like that person than I see her as the Connecticut conservative. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, I don't know that that's true of the other two recent conservative appointees. They're, they're probably somewhere more in the middle, Mm -hmm. but I think she's distinctly, at least the way she's represented, she's distinctly religious, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's, scary to people in the way that conversations about taxes are never scary. Mm. We might have disagreements about, should it be 5% higher, should it be 10% higher? Yeah. But when I say, um, or not when I say, when the state of Texas makes a declaration about what's permitted in regards to abortion, mm. that's a much more significant issue to people. Um, I think it's more significant issue to, to Amy Coney Barrett than it probably is anyone else on the Supreme Court. And that's Mm -hmm. not specific to her being a woman. She's not the only woman on the Supreme Court. Um, I think that from what I understand of her non-legal life decisions, Mm -hmm. it would seem that that's a pretty important issue to her.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've given me a lot to work with, which which is certainly exciting. But yeah, I mean, maybe just to jump back a little bit, I guess the first point that I'll make is I think it was a very helpful way of illustrating uh i guess maybe the the nuance to how something like conservative can be interpreted and the the kind of valley between uh i guess you could say the two sectors of of the party in in practice or maybe even uh in description in motivation is maybe how you put it really are and i think at least something historically i've observed is that the that conservatives generally do a better job of consolidating or or settling their differences and organizing come election time and then you know really putting all of their efforts behind an individual whereas as of late the democratic party has really struggled to do that uh i think in many ways to its i mean i guess demise is a strong word considering the the current administration but. I think it, it has been an issue on the left as of late that there is, uh, I guess, there, there seems to be some some different branches right now and some different motivations. And it doesn't seem like everyone is is on the same page, which, of course, is natural and real and is, is very much the same case on the other side as well. But maybe they generally do a better job of at least come elections coming together and uh, making sure that they are generally pushing towards the same outcome. But that aside, I think maybe something worth pushing a little deeper on is your statement saying, okay, given how things currently are on the Supreme Court, you think that in the long term, that will be uh, there will be more positive outcomes than not. And considering, I guess, how generally controversial, at least in a public sense, it, it has been and the appointments have been. I'm, I'm curious, at least on one level, if there's anything, any particular issues or um, any particular changes you see potentially happening that you feel strongly about? Or is it more so that you feel like this this general school of intellectual uh, thought is, is what will maintain the integrity of, I guess, let's say the constitution, if, if that's what's most relevant here over time. Uh, it's more of a a principled stand versus uh, I think X, Y, and Z ought to change or be better. Or um, yeah, I, I guess I, I gave you the two options there. So that's that's something I'm a little bit curious about. Um, but also before I even let you answer that so that I don't forget, I just think it's, it's something I've enjoyed learning a bit more about as of late. Uh, especially as I think this was particularly when Barrett was was soon to be appointed and, and it was in the front of everyone's minds, uh, just learning a little bit more about the Supreme Court and the sort of, I guess, it, I, I don't even want to say politics, but the way that in, it's quite divergent from what we've maybe grown accustomed to in the political sphere, the way that these relationships are, are generally formed and the way that decisions are made is something that maybe the average person doesn't understand very well and and sees it a bit more rigidly where it's like, okay, six of these people are conservative and that's all you really need to know. And uh, learning a bit more, I guess, after Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed and about the relationship that she had with Justice Scalia and then mm-hmm. how, I guess, on on the face of things, it was. It seemed as though they would maybe have a very adversarial relationship, mm-hmm. when in fact they were they were quite close friends. personal friends who, who often had had dinner together, you know, with families and uh, things that that seemed unthinkable given the mm-hmm. maybe the current political climate mm-hmm. that that sort of thing would happen when they came down on on I guess opposing mm-hmm. sides on maybe one of the more famous decisions in the last several decades, but. Uh, yeah, I think it's just, if if you have anything to say on that, I'd be interested just in regards to any insights about what, for the average person who maybe doesn't have the highest level understanding of the Supreme Court, maybe what, why it's a little bit more nuanced and why your view on it might be a little bit more based in, in principles and flexibility and uh, a certain degree of I guess just not looking at it in such a black and white manner to be very straightforward.
2: Yeah. Well, likewise, as to your point, you've given me plenty to, to respond. (laughs) I mean, to, to to hit the last point first, probably. Um, I mean, anything with people, any human institution is not going to do very well being black and white in, in Mm -hmm. the sense of, of, of that rigidity. Um, and and i certainly think that's true of the court it's it's true of the history of the court you know maybe and this is even even the way that i'm i go about answering the question i think is revealing of what i find important which is itself um, you know this idea of a a value hierarchy can mm-hmm. very often tell you what someone's political alignment or or maybe intellectual alignment left or right of center might be mm. um, by even mentioning the history of the constitution and why certain things were done that's an inherently conservative mm. precedential argument yeah. whereas if i was like many of my peers in law school i might start with well, you know what what should the law be right maybe more philosophical forward looking mm. as my explanation i'm going to start the opposite which is like looking backwards and w- and how we got here and why i think we got here Mm -hmm. so one point would be um chronology the the order in which things happen in a vacuum itself i think has value which is to say if i'm giving you a list of three things it might not be inherently true that i mean to rank order them but you're certainly going to interpret the first thing as the most important naturally Mm -hmm. in the constitution article one is the legislature Article two is the court and article three is the executive okay. in terms of our branches of government. I think that was intentional. I think that that is important and, and it's important because, um, it, it are co-equal branches of government and co-equal to the extent there's a difference between that word and equal. I think co-equal is more accurate, which is that they don't have the same power. Equal is, is same at its most simple. Um, Co-equal means uh, a more nuanced point of what we might tend to mean when we say, you know, equal, which is different in both their capacity and intention and role but of equal import. Mm -hmm. Um, And so by putting the legislature first, we favored at founding democracy as an essential principle. Mm. If we had wanted the executive to be the most important, we probably would have put them first and laid out their powers and limitations and responsibility first. Mm. We put the executive last in America. And that's a reaction to the then relevant monarchies in Europe, mm. which was distinctly what our founders were attempting not to be. right? And, and something that George Washington could have very easily been and, and had it gone that course, that would match up with most of human history. Mm. One monarchy has a revolution leading to another monarchy. Right. That's how most of... History has worked. So Mm -hmm. the the uniqueness of America, to some extent, is that to some degree, if you want to really give a lot of credit to George Washington, one person with the capacity to have been a monarch chose not to and instead helped enable a long-term democratic institution. And that institution and its founding document puts the legislature first, then the court, and then the executive.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: In my sort of reading of history, I would say that that... Reality shifted in the 1930s and 40s when um, economic depression led to the need for faster, larger scale government action Mm -hmm. and fast and large scale government action is best done by an executive, Mm -hmm. not by a democratic organ that's going to be slowed down. Right. constantly, as is the case of, of, of Congress typically. They debate unendingly about all sorts of unimportant mm. things. Right. An executive makes his mind up and then he does a thing. Um, I think as our constitution sort of like contemplated it, the executive's powers were limited mm. and were most relevant in times of war mm. because we wanted quick action then. But I don't think that that's what we wanted for general policy decisions. And I think we made an, a, a very big turn away from that original constitutional contemplation mm-hmm. when under the president of F, at presidency of FDR a huge amount of power and responsibility shifted to the executive branch of government mm-hmm. from the legislative branch of government and i think that the judiciary to really get to the, the you know the core of your question has always been in between those two. The judiciary Mm. is what keeps us from being a democracy that's majority rule, that then really hurts its minorities, Mm. which would naturally occur but for rule of law, and a tyranny with an executive that's unchecked and and unresponsive to democratic institutions. The, The judiciary as being literally sandwiched in between the two in the constitution, I perceive as supposed to be that force that kind of keeps the two in line. Gotcha. And and we were very legislative, f- legislature focused, and um, federal restraint minded mm. until the '30s, and then it was viewed because of largely market failure that government needed to do more, mm. and that government needed to do more quickly, and that was most efficiently done through a strong executive. And I think the reality of that now is that the executive branch is way stronger than constitutionally contemplated, that's one issue. More personally, I think it's way stronger than it should be regardless of constitutional contemplation. Mm -hmm. Um, It should not be the case that one election shifts all federal policy. Mm. And yet, when the president changes, they get to change every leader of every federal agency, the EPA, right? all the way down, the, the three letter, you know, the alphabet kind of groups, yeah. right? Um, and when the executive gets that power, which is not constitutionally contemplated, it really changes everything in a way that I think is not very democratic. And so my view of the role of the court in its responsibility right now is to pull the executive's power in, mm. regardless of who that executive is. I felt this way with Trump. I feel this way with Biden. I'll feel this way with whoever's next. Mm. Um, I think that we have shifted too much power away from the most democratically responsive system, the legislature, towards the second most. The least is probably the judiciary. There's the least political and democratic input in the judiciary of the of our three mm. branches. Um, and yet it's not really been the tyrannical one at any point, yeah, because it's appointed by the executive. And it affirmed, confirmed by the legislature. That power is sort of, I don't know, no one knows what that was really intended to be originally. <laughs> um, it's tertiary at this point. It doesn't really seem to make much of a difference. It really comes down to, I mean, I think Trump ran on this. I'm running for president, and here's who I'm going to put on the Supreme Court. Mm. And you care because you, the religious right, care about one issue more than anything else, and it's abortion. And mm. you'll vote on that issue. Yeah. Even though what I'm going to do on taxes affects you as people, likely far more on a day-to-day basis or whatever other infrastructure. And, and all, what wars we engage in and I send your poor sons in the middle of America out to go fight mm-hmm. affects you more probably. Right. But this is the issue you've, you've chosen to care about. And so, cool. So, my hope for the Supreme Court with that kind of historical context is that they act to reel in executive power, regardless of the executive. And I think a conservative court, one focused on the constitutional contemplation of government powers, rather than focused on an end justifies the means approach, which is what I view progressive legal interpretation to be, is better. Mm. Because um, this Supreme Court is going to be the Supreme Court for presidents that are Democrats and Republicans, and I think for both. The presidents should mean less in terms of the impact of the country, mm. and I hope that the court does so as I interpret the Constitution conservatively to to, to prescribe. Mm. Um, when we think about like really, you know, the polar opposite of our current court, what would be a pretty like strong left leaning majority? Mm. Um, we think about the court in the in the in the late '60s, which was a left majority and a lot of good decisions come out of that court and a lot of catastrophic decisions come out of that court because as I interpret it in each case, those judges were thinking about what they wanted the outcome to be. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's how you should be a judge. Mm. I don't think that's the right way to do it. And I think it's always the right way to do it in a vacuum. And in that instance, mm-hmm. it's always preferable to just to have the best outcome in this problem. Sure. But when you're dealing with a problem as a Supreme court justice, you're setting the rule in perpetuity until changed for all problems like this problem. You're mm-hmm. not dealing with just this problem. Yeah. And, um, a really good example of this would be in the sixties with a left majority court. Um, there was a decision in a, a case called Katz, K-A-T-Z, um, which is also the name of very good deli in New York. Uh, oh yeah. Where the police had put a a, a wiretap on top of a phone booth. Mm. I think we may have, we may have touched on this previously, maybe not, or just That's another conversation. Yeah. Um, and so they basically were able to record a person. I think it was like a, even like a mafia sort of thing, maybe like calling in you know a, a gambling numbers kind of deal from this phone booth mm-hmm. uh, to use that against him and he claimed a fourth amendment uh, uh right you know kind of you, you've infringed my fourth amendment rights by doing this the text of the fourth amendment certainly does not protect your right to be in a phone booth right this was right. obviously not literally contemplated by the the forefathers now if you really want to get into interpretive you know being secure in your person well how how far beyond your literal flesh does your person extend does it extend to the room you're in if that room is a phone booth room, right? <laughs> so right. this is, I mean, you can get, you know, interpretation of constitutional texts is inherently can be such a process of like, wow, what do these words even mean in what mm-hmm. given context? That's why I think you should not try to use them to achieve the end you want in that case, mm-hmm. but you should use them as consistently as they've been used until changed, mm. Because if they're not working right, OK, we should change them. We shouldn't We shouldn't simply change how we read them. Mm-hmm. Change the actual words. Write them better the mm-hmm. way you'd prefer them to be, rather than reading them differently. Yeah. And the court chose to read them differently in that case, because they didn't like the outcome that at that time, when phone booths were a thing, you could walk in and be recorded by the police without them having to get a warrant. They found that to be unacceptable. Mm. And so instead of saying, yeah, you know, the Fourth Amendment gives you a lot of rights. It doesn't give you a right against this. And they can record you in phone booths. They said, no, the Fourth Amendment really gives rise to more of this spirit of a reasonable expectation of privacy. Yeah, it has these specific words, but those really give rise to this idea. Mm. And we believe that a person in a phone booth does have a reasonable expectation of privacy, which is really what the Fourth Amendment was there to give you. And so we're going to say you can't use this evidence against him. This was a Fourth Amendment violation. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're a police officer or you're someone who's incentivized by one way or another to fight crime, you're now looking at it and you're saying, okay, so these words don't matter anymore. All that matters mm-hmm. is my capacity to argue whether or not you were reasonable to think you had privacy in any given instance. Mm.
0: Yeah.
2: And so the one of the... One of, if not, I think the only dissenter in the Katz case was a very conservative, what, what would later be considered textualist kind of judge at that time, at least in his jurisprudence. And he said, you know, this is a, a, a tall but narrow right that we have in the Fourth Amendment. Mm-hmm. And you're going to obliterate its value with this decision because mm-hmm. everything becomes this question of this idea of reasonable expectation of privacy. Instead of looking at the text and saying... Well, were they in their house? Because that's covered. Mm -hmm. Was it his person? Because that's covered, right? I think that's a better way to interpret the the Fourth Amendment. I think in that case, it would have meant that individual didn't have a right. Mm -hmm. But because of the times, they were like, oh, phone booths are so essential to society. Right? Ideas that right now are a joke because what's a phone booth even, Mm -hmm. right? I don't think I've ever been in a phone booth. In my no, life. I don't think there so. It wasn't like an ironic joke in a bar. Right? <laughs> yeah. So we went out of our way to create, in some respect, a right you didn't really have in the Constitution. Because mm-hmm. we want you to have one there societally mm-hmm. as a political decision comparing policy versus policy. That's not a legal determination. A legal determination is does the Fourth Amendment apply here? Yes or no? Mm-hmm. And I don't think it did. And I think if we had kept with that then later decisions like Terry v. Ohio, can you be physically stopped and patted down on your person in public? Well, yes, because you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy. You're in public. And the police officer has a reasonable concern for his safety, making that reasonable concern more important than your reasonable assumption of privacy. Mm -hmm. That entire analysis is unnecessary when you just base it on the Fourth Amendment's text, which is to say, are you checking my person? Yes, then is unconstitutional without a warrant mm. given by a neutral detached magistrate. So we, we get what we want early. And the results are this kind of whirlpool of, well, now we've created this new rule, which no one even knows what this means because it was made up to get to an end. Mm. And it has resulted in the deprivation of individual rights. In real life today, to solve one problem once 60 years ago that doesn't give you or I any more rights to stay in reality. Mm-hmm. That to me is... That's my critique of left-leaning interpretation of law. Mm-hmm. It's always great in the moment. I often agree with the conclusion that my left-leaning friends want. Yep, I think that... Sh- I, I would like that to be the case. Mm-hmm. My concern is that the devil's in the details. And how people like myself or otherwise who went to law school who have an economic incentive to twist language can do so. Gotcha. I think that's a long-winded answer to your question.
0: No, I mean, I I think that it's well said. And and maybe to walk back just a little bit, to be clear, are you you essentially saying that in situations which, of course, there are now many, which you make clear by bringing up the relevance of a phone booth, when we have things let's just say, uh, you know, cell phones. I think it's, it's something people sometimes talk about now. What right does the police have to confiscate your, your iPhone and look at your messages or whatever? Um, obviously there's no precedence for that, right. In, in the text directly. Or are you more so saying that in these situations you have to, you're having to amend, you're having to rewrite things to, to create, uh, Laws that apply to just completely new and novel things, or that, uh, in, in essence, the, the philosophy is is generally uh, patience in, in regards to figuring out how to adapt to these new and unprecedented circumstances.
2: It's it, it's neither, I don't think, but I think it's closer to the your la- your latter point that okay. what you just said. I think that the conservative approach is to kind of bring us back a little bit earlier in what I said, hey, we're article two. So yeah, cell phones, individual right to privacy with cell phones, that's an issue. And the populace is concerned about it. Mm -hmm. And the proper way in our form of government for rules to be made is for that populace to democratically elect representatives who pass legislation regarding those laws. And there's a bare, you know, there's a floor set by our constitution. Is there a textualist argument that the term, you know, persons, papers, or effects, that sure. the or effects covers a cell phone? Mm. Um, how would Scalia deal with that problem? He'd probably say, well, how was or effects interpreted at the time it was written by the people who wrote the fourth amendment? Mm. What was the, by literally going to a dictionary from that period and looking up the definition of effects Mm. and then how it was used in other legal parlance at that time. So he would try to get what's called the originalist. He was an originalist. Mm. I think Thomas is a bit more of a, of a textualist. I mean, he's a textualist. He's an originalist when it's convenient to him. That's one of the human problems, (laughs) right. With Scalia is, is that some of his opinions are, are, are beautiful and some are heinous. I think um, in, in his human element. But that would be one interpretive school is what does this word mean and then how can we apply that now? If you'd like it to be broader, if you don't think effects covers it and you think that effects should, hey, guess what? You can pass a new constitutional amendment. Mm-hmm. Or you can simply say, yeah, this is the floor. Maybe the constitutional floor would allow police to search our, our phones. But we don't want that. So we're going to set a higher floor through legislation, through mm-hmm. democratically elected representatives in the legislature. Um, instead. Again, maybe a little bit to that kind of overarching point. What it tends to be is which executive administration is in charge? Because mm-hmm. which one is in charge is going to have their personal policy? Are we going to hack into phones of domestic terror suspects to to stop things from happening? Mm. Or are we going to wait for things? Are we going to go through the typical warrant process? Are we going to wait for things to happen and then try to get into all of that tends to be enforcement decisions? Enforcement is the Department of the executive I mean, that's who enforces the law is the executive, mm-hmm. and so I think the 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 worst branch of government to be making the decision is the enforcers are deciding what the rules mean, and mm-hmm. there are two branches of government besides them that are really supposed to be doing right. that. Let's say you should write it, judiciary should interpret it, and then the executive should enforce it. Instead, from from the administrative state existing entirely under the executive. When a new executive comes in, and this is true for states. I mean, a governor coming in, there's still an administrative state in a state government. North Carolina's governor changing changes how every single one of the departments in North Carolina is run. Mm -hmm. And if that governor says, yeah, we're going to hack into iPhones and we'll deal with the problem later, then that's what the police are going to do. That's what the state attorneys are going to do. And the rest is going to have to catch up. Um, I think that. That Article three should not have that power, that mm-hmm. Article one should be the first place we look. How have the 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 populace through their representatives acted upon you know security rights with cell phones? Mm-hmm. Have they at all? Um always keeping in mind, are we at least at or above the constitutional floor as provided in civil rights? Um Yeah, I mean the Fourth Amendment or effects kind of language like, is like that could be 400 podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that yeah. it's a, it's a, it's. You can get in those foxholes with this stuff. That's just like your mind just kind of gets lost mm. in a way. But.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we certainly don't have to get too deep into the weeds on, on that particular issue, but I guess maybe in, in my attempt to probably represent what the average person who maybe has a, a bit more of a progressive edge to them would be asking, given what you've, Represented so far is do you feel like given the current degree of division within our political landscape that our legislative branch still has the capacity to be relied on to pass legislation that uh, at a speed that is effective and I guess maybe effective is just the best word given the what we've seen and even the last decade or so in regards to the the gridlock that that we're often faced, which I think, and I don't mean to speak for you, but you would maybe argue is is often a good thing for things to move slowly. But in regards to the world that we now live in, that that just seems to continue to progress, whether it be technologically specifically or not, in ways that, you know, a decade ago, things are just so different. Um, And I think technology is is maybe that force multiplier that has made many things much more complicated. But ultimately, I guess my question is, do you you still have the, the same degree of faith that you seem to have philosophically in relying more so on the legislative branch to carry out whatever new laws or or changes need to be made to kind of keep up with the rate of, of societal, uh, I guess I I was going to say progress, but I feel like that that maybe is too subjective of a word to use, but I think you get what I'm asking.
2: Well, and this is a pessimistic view, but I think it is, it's, it's where my, my views grounded. You know, I think there's a Winston Churchill kind of quote about like, democracy is the worst system we have that works. It's the only system we have that works. So there's a lot of problems. Um, And as we think about contentious decisions being made by one of our three branches of government, let's just consider really practically what that looks like. And this, hopefully I can kind of hit on a few of your previous Mm -hmm. points in this. If it's the judiciary... Let's think about who's in the judiciary. It's people who went to law school. Who goes to law school? People from the upper class, economically, overwhelmingly, are the populace mm-hmm. of law school. That's part, I think, I mean, this is this is kind of a, a far left argument that, that I kind of find a little bit persuasive, frankly, is that part of why Ginsburg and, and Scalia got along is because they were both rich white people. Mm-hmm. Their reality was kind of unaffected by a lot of their decisions. Mm-hmm. Um Ginsburg wasn't always rich. I don't think Scalia was always rich. But they both were doing perfectly fine at the right. time they were interacting with one another, another with regularity. And so a very frank way of asking that question is, do we want rich, white, highly educated, formally people to make all of the decisions in the country? Probably not. Mm. That's not really. It's not really, I think... It's really not constitutionally contemplated. And, right. and I think it's not, it's not the best way to do things. that we would aim for. Yeah. Um, you know, there's sometimes this idea of like, and this is more true with socialism, this idea of like uh, governance by experts, right? Mm-hmm. This is part of the, the pro-administrative state argument is like, isn't it great we have so many scientists in government and so many engineers and we have experts in government making expert decisions, but they're all politically answerable mm-hmm. and politics is democratic, elected by uneducated people. Right. <laughs> so sometimes you have experts answering to, and this is I think was, was most evident in the Trump administration, when you have career scientists answering to people who don't believe in the science mm. that those career scientists have done dissertations in. Right. That's good and bad, I think. Um it's 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 bad obviously because things like climate change are, are real, are scientifically validated, and um allowing political strife to get in the way of that response is probably a minimum, not ideal. Mm-hmm. I think it's good because um, there's lots of experts in all sorts of things all throughout history who were entirely wrong about what they were saying right uh, I don't think that's true with climate change why I made that the specific kind of <laughs> counter example but but certainly other things and and I think there's a real blindness that comes with expertise in one field. Mm-hmm oh, I've always been really smart. I've been very academically successful in my field. And therefore, I'll apply my global intellect to all the world's problems and do well with that. Now, This is what politicians do inherently, but I think they do so with the knowledge that they don't really have any idea about anything they're talking about. Mm. The problem with putting a civil engineer in charge of anything besides civil engineering is they have no idea what the fuck they're talking about. Mm. And they think they do. Because yeah. so, they're really smart. They're really good at yeah. like <laughs> So, So that's my issue with this idea of, of governments by, by experts, is that experts who are not politically accountable are just really smart people at one thing who often are asked to deal with other things that they don't have any idea what they're doing. Mm. So the expertise of the person in the lab at the EPA, absolutely, I want that person to be an expert,
1: mm-hmm. the person
2: in DC making decisions. Being an expert, I question even the idea of that because these are ultimately policy trade-off decisions, and mm-hmm. and the real experts of that are probably economists, not anyone in the hard sciences. Right. But then you put economists in things dealing with hard sciences, and they overlook right. Like sure. we all have our, it, it, we should all acknowledge our our weak spots and our and our our you know, we don't. No one knows everything. Mm. Albert Einstein would have been really horrible at a lot of jobs. Oh yeah, right. Just fundamentally because you. You don't have the the time to be good at everything. Mm-hmm. So so I think that's that's an important at least preface. Yeah, I think gridlock, I think slowness is built into our system. I think it's built in more so even than it exists right now. I think the executive through administrative action. Um here's a here's a nice contentious <laughs> example. Let's do it. DACA, mm-hmm. the immigration yeah. law. Um, Obama as an executive action just said, we're not going to deport these kids. Mm-hmm. Effect- this is very boiled down yeah. and in some respect going to be inherently wrong Just just for the purposes of being able to talk about it kind of freely. But effectively, a piece of legislation had the executive say, I don't think this is right, to your point. The legislature moves too slow to make the changes necessary to affect these real people's real lives. Mm -hmm. And so I, as the executive, the constitutionally contemplated least powerful co-equal branch of government, I'm going to make a sweeping decision that directly contradicts legislation. Mm -hmm. Um, Most people like the outcome and are okay with the means because of that. I like the outcome. I don't like the means. Mm -hmm. I think that the legislature should do their fucking job and change the law. Mm -hmm. And they'd be more incentivized to do so if they had not had effectively all their responsibility put off on the executive. Mm -hmm. Why act if you're like, Obama can just deal with this if he wants to. Mm -hmm. What am I going to get up in the morning and and go like have to go whip up some votes? Our whole – this is all for show at this point. And I think that's a lot of what the legislature is now is just dramatic theater Mm -hmm. um, where the most important things are the things least covered to some degree. So – I think that highlights one of these situations where quick change can be popular. It can be really great policy in that change. And I think Mm -hmm. DACA is both of those. It's unconstitutional for an executive to make that decision. Mm -hmm. And it's wrong generally for executives to do that. And anything Trump would have done similar to that would have probably been not popular. And people would have been, can you imagine the executive doing this? This is unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. So, So both... This is the wrong of, of everyone. Everyone uses the constitution when it's convenient. Yeah. And when it's not, it's an outdated document that we don't really need to be as concerned about. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe something like you said earlier, I mean, a, a place of principle is to apply it even when you don't like the results. Mm-hmm. And the way that you change that, out, that from happening is that you change what it is you're interpreting, which is either the law or the constitution. Mm-hmm. Period.
0: Full stop. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I have a much better understanding of where you're coming from now. So I think that was quite helpful, and I think it's a it's an interesting and very straightforward. Obviously, complicated when you think deeply about it, but a, a straightforward way of potentially assessing people's uh, political views in a way mm-hmm. that, and, and maybe in uh, in legal circles, it's talked about more often, but in the general public. Uh, let's just say on Twitter, maybe not so much, that it, it's more a matter of how much you feel like ends justify means, Right. if, if you're putting it that simply. And I think largely from that perspective, I, I agree with you. I, I, I often feel like most things that are done uh, somewhat rashly or quickly in the moment that typically act as Band-Aids are, are just never sustainable solutions. And, and again, that's 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 painting with very broad strokes, but, but generally speaking, I'm, I'm someone who who does not feel like the ends justify the means in, in almost any scenario. But of course that's that's a much broader <laughs> philosophical argument in and of itself, but I think reducing it down to that does does give a better sense for for where you're coming from in, in just a, a general, very general conservative perspective or interpretation. Uh, for as a better word mm-hmm. of the law, that at the end of the day it is it is more so about figuring out what is going to work most often in the future uh, to the apply to the broadest uh, degree of, of situations mm-hmm. and and trying to uh, remove the emotional reaction or the context of the most present mm-hmm. situation, mm-hmm. which I think generally is is the way that that we ought to look at things but mm-hmm. um I think to some people that makes me conservative even though that's that's not necessarily I have
2: some I have some feelings that you, that that I think at again at that value base that you might have a more conservative disposition that you might consciously not be aware of like I'm I'm aware of your nature <laughs> I'm than you are. but I do I see that in you and, and with with a variety of my friends who I think given our age given our and I don't mean to cut you off I apologize for that no, no, you're fine. um being under 35 today, you're more likely to be a more left-leaning person. Sure. I think most of most of our friends are more left-leaning people. I think that's probably generally true compared to maybe the median person in America. Um, but I think that your values will probably result in at some point in your life, you moving more towards the right than the left. That's my prediction, mm. which, I, which I'd which be positive.
0: <laughs> sure, yeah, of course you do. I mean, I think... Um, I think for a lot of reasons, and it's something I've I've touched on a little bit in my last two conversations. Mm-hmm. So so maybe those who follow this are are aware of that. I mean, I, I certainly can admit that I've I've moved more towards the right over the past couple of years for for a number of reasons, as I said, and, and I think that's still very much I can openly say leaves me on on the left of center. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Um, I think I've always been quite moderate mm-hmm. since I had. True firm political views, and not that I've moved to that much, but I think there's just a number of issues that, or even just a a more so a, a cultural change in what I guess the mainstream uh, of left of center is is generally pushing for now. That uh, let's just say I don't necessarily get down with. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say that I uh, I'm particularly compelled by a lot of, of what I see uh, on the right, particularly right. as of late, but right. I think I, I might eventually find myself very unfortunately dead in the center, you know, not, not dead, dead, but <laughs> uh, you just uh, had a reaction to that, but uh, maybe, but yeah, I think I just, uh, I try my best to assess every issue relatively independent of others. And I, I think I find myself surprised often when when exposed to the intellectual perspective of of both sides that that things aren't necessarily as as cut and dry as mm. of course they, they seem to be represented mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the media. And I think a lot of my still quite firm political leaning at the end of the day comes from a place of or maybe two places that I have spent uh, at least a decent part of my life in contact with the sorts of people that you, you may be referred to, uh, when was it, when were we talking about DACA, in regards to just situations in which you see people suffering, right? And the the immediate reaction is that this this must stop, right? by any means necessary, that this this is unjust and fundamentally, we can and ought to do better as a country that is as wealthy as the United States, we shouldn't have people that live this way. Um, And I think a lot of my political leaning has always come to some extent from that place of if, whether those are people, and and I think a lot of it is that, that at times it has been people close to me, right? And so that's, that's where I feel like a lot of people's political leanings boil down to is, okay, how does it affect Just those generally, those that I care about, uh, those that are around me, and and other than that, I don't really care. But uh, having some exposure to that has always influenced me quite strongly, because I must admit, on some level, it's 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 very hard not to throw your hands up in the air and say, "Is there any real prospect of of changing this in the long term Mm. through the the normal means of a very slow." And frustrating progress, right? Uh, yes, of course. There is <laughs> my
2: conservative answer. Yeah. Well, sure,
0: yeah. And, and I understand that. Uh, but of course, in the moment, right, right, and and I can very, uh, I guess, unironically say, emotionally speaking, it, right. it is, it's, it doesn't make sense. And in the moment when you're faced with it, because it it forces you to turn a blind eye on, on some level to what makes you uncomfortable about society. And then though, of course, it's. It's the the argument is is playing the more long-term game and to to look at it from a, a more of a bird's eye view to, to stop one person from suffering right now, uh, but to cause a million people to suffer in the future. Clearly that right. is worse, right, right, right. but mm-hmm. it's it's not really the way that we are wired mm-hmm. to to respond to things. And so I, I think that's that's one very strong dimension of it. As well as, I guess, my other point just being quite similar that I feel like, and maybe I've already made this point on some level, that our floor is much too low yeah. in this country. And I think we could be doing a lot more for those who simply have happened into terrible situations by by pure matters of luck. And in how you interpret that, I think, is obviously on some level represents how you lean politically, but I think you certainly could argue with a certain degree of people that, you know, okay, maybe these are choices that they've made. They, they have right. the same opportunities to, to navigate through a system that's structured probably better than any other to, to be right. mobile. Right. But at the same time, um, I think there, there is at least a, a non-trivial portion of the population that, we, we can't really make a super strong argument about them being able to change too much about their situation. And I, I think that we should do what we can to make sure that they can live somewhat comfortably given what we have. And I get that that's all relative to what the globe has and, and that here we we live better than nearly everyone else, uh, even at the floor. But um, it, it seemed as though you maybe had a response to that. So I'll I'll, I'll let you open up.
2: Yeah. I mean I'm certainly doing myself no favors by by countering the idea that we should do more for the people who have less, right? <laughs> my <laughs> big like my objection. <laughs> I don't think I'm I'm winning people. Let me let me maybe say this. I, I think you're alluding to a point that maybe I value more, mm-hmm. and that affects my my view. And then and then another point that I think maybe you're you haven't hit on, though I, I, I know you to be someone who will appreciate. The first is is yes, you're correct to say people in the bottom 10% socioeconomically in this country exist in the top 1% of people to have ever lived. That's not even a question. Absolutely, Um, and you know, really getting down to that, like there there are people who starve to death in the United States. There are people who have those really severe basic human needs problems. but those are middle-class issues in European countries mm-hmm. today that are faced to a lesser extent for people who don't work, have no education, and have never worked in the United States. Mm-hmm. As a general statement, there are yeah. exceptions to that. I think that that is a credit to what social um, programs we do have and have chosen to, to, to keep A lot of those originate around the same kind of operative time I'm talking about with the shift to power to the executive in the 30s and 40s. A lot of what made that a popular and acceptable change to the foundation of the country is that the executive doing so was promising quite a lot to the populace. Mm -hmm. I'm going to employ you, the people, millions (laughs) of people who don't have jobs. I'm going to provide... um, Social Security to the old people who lost everything and their pensions on on Wall Street, and mm. your alternative is homelessness, right? Right. So you people who have years, a couple of years to live, would you like to wait for the legislature to get things done, or do you want me to do it? Right. That's an easy trade-off there, mm. right? And that's always that's that's the slow, you know, it's the uh, kind of libertarian writer, uh, the the road to serfdom is kind of that idea, which mm-hmm. is the slow seeding, of responsibility and power to the executive who promises to use so for the benefit of the populace, drawn out in a straight line, results in a tyrannical dictator. Yeah. Um so, so those are concerns, I think, with 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 those kind of programs. The other thing, and I think I may very briefly have addressed this in in our previous conversation. There's a book that I like um, called, I think it's called The Limits of Benevolence. mm mm-hmm. And it's this idea, it's, it's a couple different professors and then an ACLU director from New York um, who, who have this idea of like, at what level of helping someone are you enabling their very worst qualities mm-hmm. or, or indeed acting in some way as an obstacle to their progression in life? Right. And by having social wef- welfare programs that can keep people fed, housed with water basic amenities, television, um, are some people simply not going to work because of them being having access to those things without the necessity for any personal production? Mm-hmm. To your point, there's a certain amount of the, of the population who certainly we need to raise the, the floor for. Mm-hmm. Others might argue that people who fall in that particular category should have nothing. Mm-hmm. If you are the kind of person who, if I give you just enough to get by, you won't contribute anything to society, Mm -hmm. then you're a leech on society. That's the very most negative view I think people can have of of welfare kind of programs. I don't think it applies to everyone on welfare programs, but in the same respect that we can identify some unknown small population whom situations are really horrible for and really should be improved as a matter, to your point, of the, the overall wealth of our country. There's also, and I don't know the relative size of these two groups, and maybe that's the relevant question, A group who each time you increase, well, maybe the better way of of wording would be each time you decrease the necessity of personal production, Hmm. become less likely to produce. Right. And to to their own detriment, i.e., what is your life when you're when every month you're just getting by, it's the first and the fifteenth. You get enough to get your groceries. You can sit around and play Xbox all day, maybe a little bit to smoke a little weed while you're doing so, and that's your existence mm-hmm. till you die or get on then Social Security, where you're getting money to do the same basic, you know, living costs. Uh, there are some who would argue that by depriving at least that portion of the population capable of production mm-hmm. of the means. By which you know they would then do nothing. You're helping those people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's kind of that. Sometimes you got to kick the teenager off the couch to go, you know, stop being lazy to do something in this larger human societal level. Um, and I think those are are the two political views of the same issue. Mm-hmm. And I think that that it, in that political pulling of the rope, it's always a loss. That's that's kind of my view. If we tighten down on what welfare is provided, there's more people in the camp you're describing whom, in a first world country, should be having better conditions and don't. The money's available and it isn't being used for them. Mm -hmm. Each time more things are added to the welfare state, more people who would contribute to society and be productive and have productive lives don't. Mm -hmm. That's my view of the Mm trade-off. And so yes, um, I think probably the more important of those two is that we don't have people starving in the streets. We generally don't. Mm. It's really not a massive problem here. Sure. And then we should continue to work against it because I believe that food, water, shelter should be considered human rights. Mm. I see sometimes on Twitter and other things, all sorts of other things that have worked their way into what's called human rights, mm. all sorts of things. Yeah. Sometimes the list is 15 things. Mm. What you need to survive is food, water, and shelter. We should provide those. Yeah, is
0: education a human right? Fundamentally, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's it's hard to make that argument. I would say, though, emotionally, I'd like to say yes, right. I'd I'd like for everyone to have education, but saying it is a fundamental right, I think, is 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 not something to take lightly, right? So I'd like
2: for everyone to have it too. I'd like for everyone to have a car.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: A car is human rights. <laughs> so there's a point of what of my desire for other people to have things that are, is limited economically, mm-hmm. and, and all of these points are maybe like another kind of core issue. I don't mean to kind of bring things full circle at this point in any kind of conclusory way, but economics, which is what I think I I try to look at in all of these decisions. The, the you know thomas Sewell says the first rule of economics is that there's it's trade offs with a finite amount of resources and the first right. rule of politics is to ignore, ignore the first rule of economics mm. because when you're working with politics it's what people want so ignore finiteness and ignore trade offs right it's it's a lot of of the biden kind of rhetoric recently that there's the kind of the funny like there's that meme of him going guess what helps the
0: economy right that whole kind of thing <laughs> yeah.
2: hurts no one helps everyone Well, that is an idea, is economically impossible. Right,
0: that's nonsense.
2: But politics exists to convince people that you can get something for nothing and how great of a deal it is and how the other guy who they could vote for won't give them that. Mm -hmm. And economics is the reality that Mm -hmm. every choice has a cost and there's always a trade-off. And I guess it's my view that conservatives acknowledge and deal with that reality more so than do the political left. I think mm. the political left is more focused on what they think can and should be and rightly so. I think that, they, that, that both are necessary because that's how real progress occurs is that it's steady, it's measured, it's considered, but it's also forward-looking and it's intended to improve conditions unendingly. How those conditions are approved do we rely on market forces to do them versus a centralized government those are the, the questions that have to be dealt with politically mm-hmm. but I think at a core level again in the balancing of values I think it's it's my disposition that um that the conservative kind of variant of that's more correct
0: yeah yeah I mean I I, I take your point and and I I take it very earnestly I think you've represented it well and I think uh, I think there's probably less daylight between how we generally view things than one might imagine, largely because I think maybe when I talk about being someone who's generally moderate but a, a bit left-leaning, I think sometimes people, at least now, maybe interpret this idea of, of being moderate, meaning that you you just don't really have opinions uh, or you really know how to sit on a fence or you're just generally quite political and, and that part of that is to simply kind of play both sides. But I I do see where you're coming from fundamentally. And and I think a lot of it makes sense and, and is compelling. And, and as I was saying before, I, I must admit my own bias that a lot of my political leaning historically has come down to what I've experienced personally. And as someone I think it's important for me to acknowledge and face as someone who who grew up supported by, by some of these welfare systems who, who grew up with, you know, family, who, who dealt with a lot of these problems that, sh- of course, as a, as a child, I'm not looking at some sort of broader philosophical, even economic argument as to, uh, is this something that I should re- is this really benefiting me in the long term. Uh, so a lot of my views are, I think as, as anyone ought to acknowledge based in, in personal experience and, um, the sorts of things that I've seen and in my inability to not have compassion towards the people that I care about more so than anyone else. Mm-hmm. And so I think that probably you could attribute most of the daylight between uh, where I am and, and where someone more so right of center is largely on that front. Um, but But again, some of it is is much more much more detailed and, and gets into to different policies and, and all of that. But I think that's a conversation for for another day. I know we certainly. never we never
2: have short conversations or or, or ones that get, approach even half of the topics originally <laughs> considered.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think to be honest, though, that is that is why I enjoy doing with this, with you in particular because it allows for a certain depth to be reached and ensure. It, it would be ideal, maybe. I, I mean, it wouldn't be ideal because no one would listen to it. hour If this was a fifteen hour conversation <laughs> right. that we, I'm sure, will continue off the air right. uh, once it stops recording. But there's there's certain limits to what an audience really wants to and is willing. Well, the to... first five minutes we <laughs> pass that <are> probably. <laughs> yeah. already. But uh, at the same time, I think you've done a very good job of uh, at least. Uh, Leading me along uh, to to better understand your views and, and maybe why what a lot of people are having very strong responses to right now and in the Supreme Court or even just politically um, that that maybe there's simply a different way of looking at it or or a broader view to find and that uh, I think it's it's rare that I I see these sorts of I see the perspective that you have, particularly, and that's part of the reason why I wanted you to come back on the show. Is that I think someone who has your educational background, your even your personal background, it's it's just the sort of perspective that you you don't necessarily run into every day if you're just a, a regular person. And uh, you know, not, not to pat you on the back, but I, I think that's valuable. And I, I of course think it's valuable for for you to see the opposite uh to some extent in, in others, which I'm, I'm sure you do. But in in respect to everyone's time involved here, I think we'll, we'll bring this one to a close today. But uh yeah, I, I, again, really do appreciate your time here and and you coming in for this. I, I'd certainly like to continue it in the future. And I think as we maybe see how some of the things that are on the docket play out mm-hmm. for for the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. we can definitely, come back on and, and maybe react, respond, address yeah. and, and, cool. and have a little more fun with it maybe in the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I know I maybe led you into a few pits here, uh, but really I think you navigated them yeah, yeah. quite well. And I, and I appreciate you being a, just a tad bit brave to, to, to just go for it and have this sort of conversation. Cause at the end of the day, that's what it's all about for me and to be able to just give other people one more piece of input right uh you know another piece of input that they otherwise wouldn't be exposed to one more perspective one more thing that you know no one's no one's telling anyone how how to think how to be uh to change anything about their lives but to simply be open to to what else there is out there and uh to be willing to be flexible regardless of where it comes from so again thank you nevin
2: yeah thanks appreciate it
0: and uh yeah hopefully we'll do this again soon sounds good all right well thank you all for joining and uh, we'll see you next time So if you've made it this far, hopefully it's because this project has resonated with you in some way and added value to your life. And if so, it would be great if you could take that next step to do any of the things that people are always asking you to do. Subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, share with a friend, give us a follow on social. I know it can feel like a chore, I get it, but it is all rather simple and easy, (laughs) a lot easier than listening to this whole episode. So any support really does mean a lot to me and goes a long way towards helping this show and its message grow. The simple fact that you're still listening at this point already makes this whole thing worth it for me. Anything else is just gravy. Remember, again, please do send your questions and topics to at anon on Instagram and Twitter. I welcome them all and would love to hear from you. And oh, If you could be interested in coming on this very show, shoot us a message. Seriously, there are no requirements. I'm always looking for new guests with unique perspectives. I don't care about how many followers you have or where you went to school, and I certainly don't wanna read your resume. I just like having interesting, candid conversations. So why not? You're all already a part of this project in my eyes, but I'll give it a rest for today. Thanks again. Your perspective is valuable, and I'll see you next time.